0: All right, so um, I want to tell you how we're gonna approach the next few weeks. So uh, tonight and next week will be in Romans, and we're gonna take a break uh, d- uh, during the time of Lent and uh, we're gonna move upstairs into the sanctuary and we're gonna do Wednesday Lent and I'm not sure how I'm gonna be able to put that on Zoom. Uh, but what I want to do is we're doing a, uh, unvarnished Jesus campaign reading each day for devotion and scripture. And on Wednesdays, what I'd like to do is just kind of discuss that and sing a couple of songs and, uh, just use this period of time that leads up to Easter, uh, to prepare our hearts and to rejuvenate and that type of thing. So we won't be done with the Roman study, um, until after uh, Lent is done, we'll pick it back up there and finish up. But what we want to do is tonight and next week, we want to take a look at chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, and we're going to look at the first two chapters tonight. So this might generate some discussion because of the way Paul writes this material, and the question to keep in mind is why did he write it the way he did? So as we jump in, uh, by way of introduction, This section, chapters one through eight, is usually considered the theological portion of Romans. Nine through 11 is often considered kind of a parenthetical section, and then chapters 12 through 16 is considered the practical section of the book of Romans. But we've been doing something a little bit different, and we've been starting at the end and working to the front so that we can kind of see the context of why Paul wrote what he wrote. And in many ways, this is all pastoral theology, because what he's trying to do is get uh, people in the house churches in Rome to get along with each other. But by way of reminder, I just want to remind you of what we've already seen. When we looked at the end of Romans, we saw the introduction of two groups of people, one Jewish, one Gentile, And Paul gives to each a name, the strong and the weak. And you can see on the screen there that the weak are Jewish believers who in the stream of God's elective purpose, that is the nation of Israel, is where God began his work to bring his Messiah into the world. Yet, knowing the history of the nation of Israel, we know that she went into exile several times over. And she's currently under the thumb of Rome. And there is a question possibly whether or not the Gentiles have replaced the Jews as God's elective purpose in the world. And Paul says, no. And part of what Romans is designed to do is to show that God has been faithful to the covenant that he made with Israel. And in so doing, he then tells the, the weak, that is those that are still clinging to the law and to, to the Torah, that God often makes surprising moves throughout history. And we've already talked about Esau and Jacob and how God chooses the younger over the older, that God makes twists and turns throughout uh, the history of Israel to do his work. And what we find is when you read the genealogies, in Matthew and in Luke, you'll find that there are some twists and turns in there That because you'll find people like Ruth and Rahab, uh, some people that you wouldn't expect to be a part of the genealogical line of Jesus. The other group, they're called the strong, are predominantly Gentile believers who do trust Jesus to be the uh, Jewish Messiah, but they have chosen not to observe the law they are no longer adhering to the stringent um, code of the Torah, and they have developed a more condescending attitude toward the Jewish uh, element in the house churches. Uh, They are trying to say, why can't you come along with us? Uh, Why are you stuck on Torah law? And they feel superior, which is not surprising because Uh, Gentiles in general have often thought themselves more superior to the Jewish people. That's been true uh, even beyond the biblical text. So in chapters 12 through 16, the element that Paul is trying to get across is for both groups to develop a Christoformity. uh, That is to develop and form in the likeness of Christ, emphasis on love and not power or position, And that way they can get along with each other and they can live at peace within the empire as well. So that's kind of a summary and a way of introduction. And now we're going to jump into chapter one. But before I do, do you have comments or questions on any of that? Because I think this plays critically important in understanding what Paul is doing in chapters one and two of Romans. Any thoughts?
1: Are you thinking of sharing your screen or was that all just? um... Okay,
0: no, no. Uh, I will be glad to do that. I didn't realize it wasn't shared yet. Okay. I know what happened when I logged out and came back in. There, is that better? Yes. Okay, good. Thanks for telling me.
1: I appreciate that.
0: All right. I'm going to try to get all of you here. here we go. I think I have all of them. Okay. So here we go. Um, Let's go to Romans chapter one. I want us to notice the opening of the letter. So in the beginning verses, I'll just kind of read as we go along here and just point out a few things. It says here, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So as Paul begins his letter, he begins many of his epistles in the same way. What we find is he he designates his apostleship. But what's interesting here is in the NIV translation, it's translated as servant, but In the original language, doulos is a Greek term that means actually a slave. He is one that is committed to um, Christ. He owes his allegiance to Christ. And I think that's important because what we're going to understand about um, faith is more about allegiance to Jesus than it is about necessarily trust. And I think we'll come to that here in a moment. But when you think about this term that he uses to introduce himself, one of the things that we find is that this would sound very degrading, especially on the Gentile side of the um, equation, because Romans had slaves. And uh, as a result of that, one of the things that happens is There is this looking down upon uh, individuals that were a part of the slave class. So in this situation here, Paul uses a very provocative word to initiate his uh, introduction to this letter. But he also uses a very profound word. He uses the word apostle. So an apostle is one that has been called out and put on mission to carry out the work of Christ in the world. So two terms that stand out here. One is degrading in the eyes of the reader, at least part of the readers. And then the others would be an elevation, but yet called in question. If we think about the book of Galatians, we'll know that there were uh, some Jewish people um, followers uh that followed paul around that questioned his apostleship because he was not part of the 12 so having said that um we we can get to this idea of the gospel so in verse 2 he says that he's been set apart for the gospel but it's interesting here the way it is introduced, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the first thing to note here is a redefinition or understanding of this idea of gospel. When we think of gospel, at least within evangelical Christianity, we think that it's the message of how you get into heaven after you die. That's not in, that's not in the opening paragraph. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is. It's about the good news that he's the son of God. And that he has been verified to be the son of God through his resurrection from the dead. That's a huge difference there than thinking that the gospel is about trying to get people into heaven before uh, after they die. I think it's a a bigger, broader, uh, bolder concept than what we often hear from teachers and preachers uh, in our own day. So you'll notice the highlighted area here. Um, Gospel is introduced as the announced message of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God. That is what he came to accomplish as a descendant of David, uh, how he's been appointed as the son of God to carry out his uh, kingdom. And it's been verified through the resurrection from the dead. And when we think of the gospel in those terms... One of the things that it will do is it gives to us a bigger picture than simply thinking about the gospel being about just my forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? It has a, it has a much broader uh, perspective. In fact, the gospel is not even introduced uh, initially in the New Testament it's found in the Old Testament. I'll show that to you in a moment because that's what he means here that it was promised beforehand through his prophets. Uh, and, and we'll see that Isaiah plays a huge part in defining this good news. So this gospel, uh, it will reach both Jews and Gentiles, the weak and the strong. But they have to come to terms with the fact that God isn't working only through one group. He's working through both groups. And any idea of power or privilege of either group is to be subverted through the kingship of Jesus. They are both to be submissive to the idea that there's only one king, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. So do you have, do you have any thoughts so far? On that. Okay. So if you could sum up this idea of gospel, the first thing to do is to recognize that the word euangelion, that's translated gospel, is literally glad tidings or good news. It's a proclamation that is going to. Uh, be beneficial for the masses. I've got good news for you. So in our day and age, we might say a euangelion is the good news, and you could fill in the blank, that uh, the numbers of COVID are going down, um, that there's a tax break, that um, any, anything that has this broad perspective um, of interpersonal and communal Element to it. So don't think me individually when you think gospel, think we that it has something to do with what God is doing in the world. So if you have a Bible, I want to kind of show you this in the book of Isaiah because in chapters 40 through 66, the good news, the proclamation of glad tidings relates to God's kingly rule. So go back to Isaiah, just keep your thumb in Romans and go back to the book of Isaiah. And when you get there, come to chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40. So in chapter 40, this picture of one crying out in the wilderness is, is first introduced here in verse three, and that should ring all kinds of bells because that's what was uh, used to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. A voice of one calling, verse three, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, The rough ground shall be level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. So it's the idea of all people, not just individuals. And then when you come down to verse 9, it says this, you who bring ah, gospel." You who bring good news to Zion or Jerusalem, go on a high mountain. You who bring gospel to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. Now, it has something to do with God's kingly rule. But how he rules is just as important as that he rules because it goes on in verse 10 and he says that see he comes with mighty power and he rules with a mighty arm and then in verse 11 but it says he tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart he gently leads them uh, those that have young so he is not the dominant um authoritarian Uh, type of ruler he is a shepherd ruler that's good news especially to a collection of people that have been uh, trampled on for hundreds and hundreds of years so let's let's go to chapter 52 and come down to verse 7 in fact chapter 52 it's still addressing uh, zion in verse 1 awake awake zion clothe yourself with strength then it goes on down and when you get to verse seven it says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring gospel bring good news who proclaim peace who proclaim good tidings who proclaim salvation who say to zion your god reigns so same idea god has this kingly rule and this is good news for the masses. Okay, a couple more. Chapter sixty, verse six. It says here, um in chapter sixty okay. Might have mark that. Doesn't seem to be right. Um That might be a wrong reference. I don't see. Hang tight with me. Well, that's a wrong reference. I don't know what I did wrong there. So let's go over to chapter 61, verse 1. It says here, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the gospel or the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This would be something that would be, um, I mean, like a beacon of hope to people that had been in captivity for so long. Here's the good news to those that are being broken by the empire. They are eking out a living. Um, the broken hearted who've lost loved ones in the invasions, possibly um, released from the darkness for the prisoners. These might be prisoners of war uh, in the invasions. There's good news that's coming. So all of this shapes Paul's understanding of gospel back in Romans. It And yet, most of the time, when we hear the term gospel, have you accepted the gospel? Uh, Are you trusting in Jesus as your personal savior? There is that element to it. But that's not what Paul's trying to get across in Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, it has a collective and communal perspective to it. And that's where it relates to the weak and to the strong. That makes sense to everybody. Do you have any questions there? And that's why he says, go on back to Romans chapter one. When it says here, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, he predominantly is thinking of Isaiah. However, the other prophets have elements in that as well. But do you see, this is something that is continuing uh, from what God had started all the way back with his elected people, the nation of Israel. Any thoughts on that?
1: In uh, the Catholic Church, they say, um, the gospel, according to, you know, it's only from the apostles like the original apostles, but they I don't think they consider. If they they call that
0: the gospel. There, I think a, a lot of times within their liturgies, the gospel as they are using it is the first four books of the New Testament. Right. So in every mass, there's always an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading and a gospel reading. So you have to listen closely are they referring to, to it to it as a concept, a theological concept, or are they referring to uh, the readings out of the Gospels? Um, they say the
1: Gospel according to Saint Luke, and then they'll
0: right. So uh, the Gospel in that situation is a book. Okay, so yeah. the Gospel according to Saint Luke is okay. This is this is a reading from the Gospel of Luke. This is a reading from the gospel of Matthew. Does that make sense? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: So yeah, it, you know, this term can be used in a couple of different ways. So the first four books are referred to as gospels. uh, But yet what Paul is doing in Romans chapter one is a theological twist to the idea of gospel. It's, and it relates to good news. And now, it's not to say this is the good news according to Luke, or this is the good news according to Matthew or Mark. That's fine, too. But usually it's referred to as the book it's coming from.
1: Well, but he's now, calling himself an apostle, too. <laughs> like,
0: who who you're referring to?
1: Paul's calling himself an apostle. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that is one of the points of the debate in the new testament as well Mm -hmm. uh is he really an apostle he wasn't with jesus that's why he will make a strong case in the book of galatians that he spent time with jesus in the wilderness if you read that text it says before he went out and he started to do this uh ministry there was a time just like jesus was in the wilderness Uh, Spending time with the father in fasting and being tempted and all that type of thing. He spent time with the resurrected Jesus in the wilderness. So, and that's his claim to apostleship, but you have, you find that in Galatians. You don't find that in Romans. So that's an interesting angle. If you really want to read his defense of his apostleship, Pretty much the whole book of 2 Corinthians is nothing but him arguing that he is uh, truly an apostle. So, all right. So, as you move through chapter one, I want you to come down to verse eight. Okay. So, he has talked about, well, this makes the point that Kay was just. Making Look at verse 5, through him, through Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship. So right there, um, he's claiming it again, to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, he gets personal in verses 8 through 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a couple things that stand out here. First, he gives thanks to God for all of you. Notice verse eight, all of you, not just for the weak, not just for the strong, but I give thanks for all of you. And it seems as though you're, he is saying your faith is being reported over the world, over all the world. Um, I, I don't know what he means by that. He's probably thinking of, the Roman empire rather than the physical world. But um, he is talking here about how he's thanking God and he wishes verse 11 that he could come and encourage them uh, with a spiritual gift and so forth. Then in verse 14, he talks about being obliged to both um, the Greeks and non-Greeks to the wise and the foolish. So he still has these two groups in mind that later he defines in the book. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now we come to the big uh, verse in this paragraph. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it brings the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Now that's an interesting comment here. I am not ashamed. Why would he be ashamed in the first place? Why is he bringing this up? It seems to me that the tension between the strong and the weak and the potential of a good news that brings both together could sit awkwardly in both uh, people. So um, on this slide, I'll go back to the other one in a moment. Uh, Romans 14 and 15, the two groups that we've been talking about, the weak might wonder if Paul's gospel creates a moral transformation without using the Torah. How is God going to change these Gentile idolaters without the law? The strong who are prone as Gentiles, and some of them being Roman citizens, are prone to privilege and power, and they would find the idea that The king of uh, of kings and Lord of lords would be crucified. So in their perspective, um, they would see that those that are crucified are criminals. So to call Jesus Messiah and Lord would be a ridiculous statement in their perspective. Well, how can a crucified person be Lord of all? So I think that helps explain a little bit about why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the fact that God is working in the Gentile community without the law. And I am not ashamed of the fact that this one, uh, who we call Lord, was crucified on a cross. So what Paul, I think, is doing is flipping the tables on his audience. So By natural viewpoint, what these readers might call dishonorable, Paul is calling honorable, that is the cross. Uh, What the world might consider powerlessness, a crucified Messiah, really? Paul is calling the power of salvation. So in this, what we find here is he is aiming at redemption in both groups. So in this section, he then is talking a little bit about um, those that are believing, the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes, either group, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, and the aim of this salvation or redemption is another word that he'll use, is the transformation of the human heart so that peace can come to both groups and that would even have a greater impact in the heart of the empire and I think that's why he says in verse 15 I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome okay I thank God that your faith is being talked about however it can do even more if the two groups come together in peace and in harmony that makes sense. So the potential of this good news expanding depends upon what they're going to do with this gospel that each of them could potentially reject for different reasons. That makes sense? Any questions? Now here comes a a, a, a collection of themes that's found all the way through chapters one through eight. Number one is the idea that the gospel saves, this good news saves, but it's more than just our soul. By the time he gets to chapter eight, he talks about all of creation standing on tiptoe, waiting for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. That is a renewed creation. And it's faith that engages this redemption. So a few moments ago, I mentioned the fact that faith is more an act of allegiance than it is kind of like a trust, even though that's a part of it. In fact, that's where he's going next in verse 17. Uh, The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So trust is a critical part of it. But he's calling for an allegiance to this one who is Lord. And those that give allegiance to him, these are individuals that are saved, brought into the work of God that he's doing in the world. And so the the big hurdle that he's going to have to jump here is the understanding that God has the right to bring Gentiles into his work. The Gentiles are not erasing Israel. But God is expanding Israel to include Gentiles to do an even even greater work in the created world. So God's righteousness, though, is revealed through this allegiance, through this faith, and through this trust.
1: Thoughts, comments?
0: Okay, so here's another term. See the word there? the righteousness of God in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, the big question here is, when we talk about the righteousness of God, are we talking about an activity of God or a gift of God or both? Now, what I mean by that is the righteousness of God. So when you hear the word righteousness, Just think of doing right, that God's righteousness is his commitment to do what is right. We receive this righteousness through faith, but is Romans trying to defend the righteousness of God as an activity, that is him doing what's right, or is it trying to defend the righteousness of God as a gift by grace that is received through faith. I would say probably both are, 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 are within this um, this presentation here that Paul is doing, if we take this in verse seventeen to mean that the gospel, for in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is this good news finally comes to a head. It finally comes to fruition in the person of christ and it verifies god's faithfulness to his people he's not given up on his people the righteousness of god has been declared to be true that he is a trustworthy god that he doesn't give up on his people doesn't turn his back on his people but the other side of it is it's received a righteousness that by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the trust element. So the element of faith, when we initially come to faith in Christ, what we're actually doing is putting our trust in in Christ, his person and his work. And Faith as an allegiance is to say, I'm going to follow. I'm going to do my very best to be a disciple, to be an individual that's committed to God's work in the world. So there's this idea here that we receive by faith this righteousness, the ability to start living out a a life of trust and transformation because the righteous will live by faith has an impact upon us. When we live by faith and trust in the character of God, it makes an impact on us. So this word righteousness is not just a Greek word, but it goes back into the Hebrew as well. So in in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, it has a relational concept. The meeting of obligations laid upon the individual, by the relationship that they're a part of. So again, a word that probably is better understood in the Old Testament is the trustworthiness of God, the ability to trust God, even when evidence sometimes causes you to doubt. And faith is a commitment to continue on trusting that. Uh, In the Greek, because Greek is more of a philosophical language than Hebrew is, it has this idea of an ideal or an idea which a measure, an individual's actions can be measured. So when we see somebody doing something, we can say, that's righteous. He's doing what's right. She's doing what's right. Or that's unrighteous. They're not doing what's right. And um, so it takes a little bit of different meaning from Old Testament to New Testament, but it is something that would be familiar uh, because it it does go back uh, quite a ways into the uh, older part of the scriptures. Does
1: that make sense? Any comments there, questions there? So here we go. So here's what I think Romans 1 and 2 is doing. It begins to
0: open up with some more theological concepts as part of the rhetoric to grasp the attention of these two groups of people in the Roman house churches. So what you find happening is at first, the rest of chapter 1 is a blistering condemnation on Gentiles And then right away in chapter two, you find he does, uh, Paul does the very same thing to the Jews. And then you get to chapter three, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's setting up both groups so that neither group can claim they're innocent. Neither group can claim they're better. Everyone is at the mercy of God. Everyone is in need of the grace of God. And so that's what he then does in chapter 3 and 4 as he talks about the grace of God. But we're not going to get into that until next Wednesday. What I want to do to for the remainder of our time, got about 15 minutes or so, is just talk about this section that is often used as a means of coercing people into um, into some type of commitment either Christ or the church or whatever without the full context of what we've been trying to set since the beginning of this study so let's just listen to some of this here and you kind of go wow this is kind of over the top isn't it Paul okay verse 18 The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Okay. Well, that's quite a launch because I don't know about you, you can walk out on a an evening and you can look at creation and you can determine there is a creator, but you cannot determine what that creator is necessarily like. Neither can you determine what the attributes of that god, uh, that god is like without further revelation. What Paul is doing is using over-the-top rhetoric to say, you, can, you know that there is a God. Ah, a God, a God. Maybe what he has in mind here is those that are following multiple gods. So that becomes apparent as he goes on, so he says, verse twenty-one. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they be uh, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. There it is. He's condemning idolatry here. And what he's doing is saying, a lot of you Gentiles, your background was steeped in idolatry. And creation shows that there is an almighty God, even though we cannot determine all the attributes of God by looking at creation. There's one thing that you can know, that this God is so great that has created everything, at least that should be telling you that the power of God that produced the creation that we find ourselves in does not, it does not reside in things like animals and reptiles. So he's making a case for this almighty being that is greater than any idolatry. He again might have some of the ideas that Isaiah had in his book, where he talks about the foolishness of creating an idol, setting it up, worshiping it you walk out and the wind blows it down and it breaks what kind of god is that you know so isaiah quite, quite, becomes very okay. very um
1: becomes very sarcastic yeah go ahead question on the first paragraph I, I sort of interpret that kind of along the lines of c.s lewis the mere christianity that that you know the first few chapters in that book are about how how we should know God you know, we're we're, the gods that we have sort of internal attributes or, you know what I'm saying? An internal part of us that, that knows these things, that's sort of human nature. If you don't, you know what I'm I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. There's kind of a a God
0: shaped vacuum inside all, all people. And we kind of know that there is a creator and we intentionally choose to Create our own gods, type thing when we well, yeah, and also
1: about right, what's kind of you know, he gets into kind of what's right and what's wrong, yeah, conscience, uh, All these that things, type of thing, virtues, and uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of built into humans, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the kind of part of the foundation he uses for the whole book, you know, that's why he's got it the first part of the book, but uh, but that's kind of how i view what. Paul is saying in the first part of this, first, the first chapter, is that people knew these things. They have this intrinsic nature of what's right and what's wrong and what, who God is, mm-hmm. and yet they still, they still kind of... Yeah,
0: Did we freeze there? Must have... Sorry about that. I think that froze for a second. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, I think you're right. I think the idea is... That when we exchange the glory of this God that um, we that we know internally, or at least um, by conscience, uh, exists, but choose to worship other things, there must be a motivation for that—either superstition or self, uh, you know, selfish purposes, that type of thing um yeah i think you're right but i think the idea is there is this kernel of of thought within human beings that when we look at creation somebody put it in place um and i think that's the, that's all he's really trying to get across at this point but i think he has a specific group of people in mind and i think that it is these gentile idolaters and what you're going to find in the remaining paragraphs, you'll notice this in verse 24, 26, and uh, verse 28, the punishment is God gave them over. In other words, God allowed them to just go their way. He didn't prevent them from going down the path that they would go, and it had certain um, consequences that when you abandon your being tethered to the one true God then your own selfishness comes into play here and let's let's look go down to verse 29 it says this is where it leads they have be, uh, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil and greed and depravity um, they are full of envy murder strife Deceit and malice, they're gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Okay, Paul, you really got your point across. I mean, he really catalogs the idea of human human beings, apart from this creator God, is going to take the wrong route, And uh, it will not lead to peace. It will always lead to division, hatred, violence, war, murder, um, all of that type of thing. Now, the big question, though, is what did he have in mind um, when you look at verse 24 It says, therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so this is one of the clobber passages that is often used against the LGBT community. Um, It's in the context of idolatry. And I think it's in the context of um, idol worship that this uh, this is being defined. I do do not think that Paul has everyone in mind here. I think he has a specific type of people. This goes back to those strong and weak, the Jew and Gentile that we, we see was such a big deal at the end of the book. I think he's just trying to knock Gentiles on their butt. And the best way to do it is to talk about the immorality of idolatry and what takes place within that system of idolatry. I don't think, personally, this is making any comment upon loving relationships uh, that people have with one another of the same gender. I just I think it's, what Paul is doing is stereotyping uh, people that have pushed the one true God aside to follow their own agenda that has often led them to idolatry. And in idolatry, they chose all of these very hurtful things. And I've already read that catalog in verse 29 and following. You cannot take one thing out of this without putting the whole thing into context here. Okay, so thoughts on that? Uh, so that's what he does in chapter one. And then um, in chapter two, he takes a turn. And the turn that he takes, hi, I'll be right with you folks. Uh, in chapter two, he takes a turn. and this is also a rhetorical turn that he is taking here. And he's going to address the Jewish uh, segment of these house churches in rome and um basically he he is going to condemn their judgmentalism so look at verse one of chapter two it says you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else well sure the jews are going to pass judgment on the type of behavior paul has just listed in chapter one that pertains to gentile idolatry of course they are going to pass judgment but what paul does a genuine a genius turn here is he says um, you have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things well they might not do it in the same way but they might have some of the very same motivations that is found in the grouping of individuals in chapter one Um, so verse 3 says so when you a mere human being pass judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you'll escape God's judgment or he's he really he is just really laying everybody down so that he can then build them up in chapters 3 and 4 so he knocks them down to the canvas and as he does so he gets ready to introduce some very big and bold and beautiful concepts in chapter 3 and 4 that talks about God's grace and mercy and, and his redemption and all of these things that become uh, very theological in, in, in their tone. Uh, and then in chapter 4, he will use Abraham as the defining definition of an individual that followed God through faith through that allegiance that uh, Abraham made as he followed where God was leading him out of his own homeland and toward another land that God was going to show him trusting that he'll have an heir and that type of thing so um you got to read Romans 2 after Romans 1 that makes a lot of sense doesn't it paul's intent was not so much to cast judgmental eyes on on the Gentiles only, but in a way set it up so that when Phoebe reads this to the house churches, the, those that are the weak, that is the Jews, they, they're brought into the evaluation as well. And, um, so I think I want to leave that there. I had somebody come in that wanted to see the building here at, uh, first Christian. Um, so I'm going to kind of close that here and, Uh, I think we have, that was only one more slide anyways, um, where God is, uh, Paul is basically talking about God's impartial judgment on both groups. And um, I'm going to close it here, and then we'll come back to chapters three and four of Romans next week before we take our Lenten journey on Wednesday nights together. Does that make sense to everybody?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Great. Thanks for bearing with um, the the material tonight, and I hope you have a great evening. We'll see you soon. Okay. Okay.
1: Okay. okay. Thanks. Nice. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye.